And I will invite you to open in your scriptures to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. In the beginning, God created a king to rule under him. And that king was to exercise dominion, God's own dominion over all the creatures of the earth. He was to cultivate the earth and to guard it from any enemy to God's reign. But an enemy came in, subtly, so subtly that he incited the king to rebel against his maker. The little king decided that he would be a great king as the enemy lived out his vain hopes vicariously through the man. This little king would make up his own mind and rule free from that great sovereign in whose likeness he was made. The king had become an enemy. And made lower than the angels, he was exiled from the throne room at the threat of a flaming sword. And his reign would be filled with pain. But the maker loved his enemy. And he made a promise to the king that from his royal line would come a true son of the great king. A king who would crush the enemy and bring peace and blessing back to the kingdom. And so they waited. But the royal line was divided against itself. King against king against king. Everybody wanted to be king. Each vying for supremacy over the others through their selfishness and intrigue and theft and murder. And the great kingdom became an embattled world of petty kingdoms. And it still is. Even those who swore allegiance to their maker said, Give us a king like all the other kingdoms of the earth. One king of our own, someone big and strong. And God said, he must be a king who depends on me and walks humbly before me and exercises my dominion rightly in the earth. But God gave them what they, what they wanted. He gave them a king just like all the other nations. And he was. And rebelling, like that first ancient king, this king too was expelled from the kingdom. But a humble king was given in his place. A great shepherd king of the people of Israel. But he too met the enemy and ate of the forbidden fruit. And yet God, in His mercy, renewed his promise to the royal line. Your offspring, he said, will possess 
the gates of his enemies, he will reign in righteousness and bring peace to his people. He will exercise truly the dominion of God. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And kings came, and kings went, and still they waited, always seeking that peace for the people that was so elusive, no matter what kingdom in which you found yourself. And the people waited for that last great king, the king of kings, their true king. And their maker kept their hopes alive with promises and prophets. They spoke of a mighty and merciful king who would also be their cleansing priest and God's final prophetic word to them. God kept their hopes alive for all of those many years with prophetic words like those given by the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so they held on to these blessed promises from their prophets. But in spite of those glowing promises, the situation got darker and darker, and good kings decreased, and evil kings predominated until that whole nation, that kingdom of God, served another king who knew not God. And they went from being under the domination of that foreign king to being under the foot of another and another. And now, at this point in the story, on the throne is a line of half-kings who rule under the heathen king across the sea. But then in the midst of this dark time comes a voice, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way, your king is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this king was like no other before him. Because when people acclaimed him, he entreats their silence. And when men seek to enthrone him, he vanishes from their midst. When his family bids him to go up to the capital and establish his throne, he declines. My hour is not yet come, he says. I come to do the will of my Father in heaven. But there does come a day when he turns his face toward Jerusalem. And in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew begins to 
unfold the events of Jesus' final week. Where we are now in our text, and running from here on to the end of the, the book, really focuses now on the very last days of Jesus' life. And the gospel writers record many of the things that Jesus said during those last days. And we're going to read those things in the weeks that are to come. But they also record, all of, all of the synoptics record three very important public acts of Jesus' ministry during that last week. They are, first of all, his entry into the city of Jerusalem, and then what we sometimes call the cleansing of the temple, and finally, the cursing of the fig tree. You see, those are our next three paragraphs. In fact, what I'd like to do this morning is to go ahead and read those three, even though our our text and our focus will only be on the first paragraph through verse 11. But Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, 
How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So there we are, three symbolic acts of our Lord in this these last few days leading into his last week of his life. Each of these symbolic acts tells us something about the nature and the roles of the Messiah. The entry into Jerusalem is the fulfillment of what it means for the Messiah to be God's king, as opposed to the Herodian kings of the Jews. The cleansing of the temple is the fulfillment of what it means to be the priest of God, as opposed to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests of that day. And the cursing of the fig tree is the fulfillment of what it means to be God's great prophet, as opposed to the scribes and Pharisees, who considered themselves to be the mouthpieces of God. And so Jesus showed himself to be God's true prophet and priest and king, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He is the embodiment and the fulfillment of all God's promises and blessings to the people of Israel. All God's promises are yes and amen in him and in him alone. And if whatever else these three uh, texts show, these three paragraphs, they show us that. That Christ came in now with this very public declaration of his fulfillment of all of their scriptures as the one promised Messiah. And the very first of these last public acts of Jesus' life that is just pregnant with meaning is this entry, this royal procession into Jerusalem. And as we see it unfolded in these first 11 verses, Matthew is focusing our attention on the actions or the attitudes of three different entities. You see, first of all, he focuses on Jesus and what Jesus instructs and and what happens in response to that. And then he talks about the response of the pilgrims that are accompanying Jesus. And finally, he focuses on the Jewish leadership in the city of Jerusalem. And so we'll take each of these in turn this morning to see what the Lord has for us. First of all, he focuses on the Lord Jesus in verses 1 through 6. And what we see about Jesus in these six verses, the thing that stands out most predominantly is that Jesus himself is orchestrating this whole scene. You see that? Jesus himself is arranging this. His arrival in Jerusalem is deliberately dramatic. The uh, Jewish uh, traditions in the Mishnah, they actually uh, have the expectation that when the people from all over um, the their scattered places come to Jerusalem, when they come for the great feasts, that these pilgrims will come to Jerusalem on foot. And of course, that is the way um, our Lord 
traveled most of the time. But now he comes into the city up high on a donkey above all of the other pilgrims coming in. Uh, this is this uh, uh, same Lord uh, a year or two earlier uh, had been told by his own family, you should go up to Jerusalem, go up publicly, proclaim yourself to be uh, the Messiah, do the great works there that you do up here in Galilee, and Jesus refused. And yet now, and, and he did go up to Passover at that time, but he went up quietly and secretly on his own. Uh, but now he comes very differently, doesn't he? Now he's sitting on the donkey, riding in, surrounded by all of these pilgrims on foot. Uh, now his time has come. In other words, the king is going public. And it's not as if the donkey is a physical necessity. Think about this. Jesus and his disciples have walked for nearly a hundred miles now from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Jerusalem. So why for the last mile or two, however far this was, Bethpage was probably within a mile or so, how, why, after walking a hundred miles, get on a donkey to go the last mile? This is not a matter of him being merely weary. This is something more. Jesus is making a statement. Christ is orchestrating this scene. In other words, it's not these circumstances with the donkey and everything, and not being thrust on him. Jesus is the one, isn't he, who gives the instructions to the disciples. Apparently, Jesus had sort of pre-planned this with one of the local villagers, that he would leave a donkey uh, a couple of donkeys at this point, tied right near the gate of the city. And so when his disciples came, they would find the donkeys there. And there was a sort of prearranged password for the keeper of the beasts. The Lord has need of him. And that would be the signal that these were the men who were sent by uh, the one who had arranged it. God needs your animal. And of course, God did need their beast of burden. All of this, in other words, was done with very thoughtful intention to be a kind of royal act reminiscent of David's son Solomon who rode into Jerusalem for his coronation on the back of a donkey. This, of course, also brought to mind, as Matthew records here, the prophecy that all of the rabbis saw as a messianic prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, quoted here in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Israel, the daughter of Zion, excuse me, behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so Jesus appropriates that imagery intentionally to make a statement about who he is. And he rides into Jerusalem on this beast, like the son of David before him, and in fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. And he does, as someone mentioned earlier in the service, he does ride in, not on a war horse, but on the back of a donkey. For he will not be the kind of Messiah that many of the Jews wanted to rise up in violent overthrow of their oppressors and be rid of the Romans, he would come humbly because his path to the throne was 
by laying down his life. So Jesus intentionally orchestrates this set of circumstances to remind them of that son of David and to fulfill the prophecy spoken of in Zechariah chapter 9, to point to the fact that he is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. Then Matthew shifts and focuses our attention now, secondly, on the pilgrims. Those Jewish pilgrims coming to the city of Jerusalem for the great feast. And we see this in verses 7, 8, and 9. The disciples bring to Jesus the donkey. Actually, there are two donkeys, aren't there? There are two donkeys, a mother and her colt. The other uh, gospels make it clear that Jesus rode on the donkey, uh, on the colt, rather. Uh, And in fact, it was such a young colt that no other human had ever ridden upon it, and which is probably why they brought both, that the mother would walk beside and and calm her young colt in the midst of all of the hubbub of the great uh, uh, gathering of of, uh, pilgrims that were there. And those pilgrims, they begin to make, according to Matthew's recollection, a um, kind of impromptu red carpet. We've all seen pictures of the red carpet that's rolled out when important, so potentially important people, supposedly important people walk into a place, or we roll out a white uh, runner when the bride begins to come in for her great wedding. And, and so they threw down their, their garments, their outer cloaks, some of them cut down branches from the trees and threw them onto the ground, just like the people of Israel did at the coronation of King Jehu back in 2 Kings chapter 9. They make a kind of royal pathway for him into the city so that not even the the feet of his beast have to touch uh, the earth. And so the king rides in, not even touching the ground. And notice also that these crowds have enough intuitive understanding of what's happening to praise him in verse 9 as the son of David. He is now publicly recognized as a descendant of the royal line to whom God has promised to give a descendant to sit on the throne forever. They recognize him as a son of David, a clear messianic reference. And with the words of Psalm 118, which we read earlier, with those words in their minds, they cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He, they recognize, he is the king who will bring salvation and deliverance for the people of God. And so they shout, Hosanna, Savior, save us. The Savior is here. And I'm sure that a lot of the people who were gathered there, merely wanted political deliverance from Rome and their earthly oppressors. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say that I think it probably is that way um, in a parallel way for a lot of professing Christians today, that they seek Christ and seek and hold the name of Christ because they believe that 
Christ will deliver them from all of their troubles and that their troubles are merely outside of themselves. So they come to Jesus so that Jesus will give them freedom from their sickness. Or they come to Jesus so that they can get help for their difficult marriage or from their poverty or some injustice that they face. And they they come to, to Jesus. But sadly, they are not willing to allow Jesus to strike at the very root of all of our problems. And that is the sinfulness that resides not merely outside of us, but within every one of our hearts. And it's so easy, isn't it, for us to see the faults of other people, to look around and at the, the evil of the world out there. But I want to tell you that you cannot come to Christ, you cannot come to His kingdom until you feel your own brokenness. And you say, save me from myself. Not just save me from my troubles. But I am sure that some of those pilgrims did, in fact, enter into Christ's kingdom that day as they recognized Him for who He was and called out to Him as their Messiah with faith and hope and joy at the embodied fulfillment of all of God's promises to them as a people. But then we turn to a third entity and their perspective, and that is the Jerusalem leadership. And Matthew records in verse number 10 that the Jerusalem leadership was stirred up. You see that? Jesus' claims do stir up people. (laughs) Have you lived long enough to find that out? Jesus' claims will stir people up. These people are not merely stirred up in curiosity, like, who is this Jesus anyway? They're stirred up with with alarm. The CSB version puts it, they were shaken. The whole city was shaken. They're alarmed at this um, pronouncement from the people that here is the king. The word had gone around to all of Jerusalem that this is the prophet. Jesus from Nazareth is the prophet, which is probably a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where God told Moses that he would raise up another prophet like Moses, this new, great, Moses-like prophet, God said, He will speak my words. And when he speaks, you'd better hear him. And this was a hope that many of the Jews held on to as a prophecy that that the Messiah would come, the great prophet, just like the great king. Here's the great prophet. And now here they are saying, the prophet has come. In fact, in John chapter 6, we read earlier that the people recognized him as that messianic prophet. And in so doing, they attempted to crown him king on the spot. This great prophet king who would reign over God's people. This is Jesus of Nazareth. The word is going around 
in all of Jerusalem. And how did Jerusalem respond? The whole city was troubled, we read. Just like the wise men, when they came to Jerusalem and spoke to King Herod those many years before, looking for a king of the Jews. And Herod, we read, was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. So now, too, the king has come to claim his throne and to press his claims, and all of Jerusalem is troubled again. Why are they troubled? Well, perhaps because they feel that Jesus, this great prophet, whoever he be, will steal their power, will steal their influence. Or perhaps they are afraid that if he continues to press his claims, and if, and if people acknowledge his claims, then it will bring great trouble upon them as a people. It will bring down the wrath of Rome if, the, if this so-called Messiah's claims are put forward publicly like this. And I tell you this, friends, that many people today do not mind speaking of Jesus as Lord when it means little to them. But when it means true trouble and hardship for them, many people are not so keen to acknowledge Jesus. What is true of the people of Jerusalem then is just as true today. That only true believers, those who are confident about who He is, are willing to proclaim His glories publicly in the face of potential danger, which is an absolute reality under the heel of Rome. Rome wanted peace over there in Palestine, over there in Judea. Not some upstarts claiming to be kings and uniting the people again against their, uh, their masters. And so today being a Christian can sometimes bring trouble, can it? It can. And for that reason, some people are troubled at the claims of Christ. I tell you too that nobody minds a nice mind-his-own-business kind of Jesus, right? You know what I mean? So people are content to let you have a Jesus who is your own sort of personal little God or your own little private religion as long as you, the claims of Jesus, the public claims of Jesus as the king of all the world are not pressed. But when you begin to press the claims of King Jesus to exercise His authority over the planet, when when you begin to say that Jesus tells us how we can live in the privacy of our bedrooms or at the doctor's office, or that Jesus has something to say to command powerful politicians and businessmen as to what they can and cannot do, or when you recognize that Jesus tells you what you can and cannot do and commands you to yield your opinions and your desires to His, 
when he rides up as the king, then that's when people begin to get stirred up. Oh, you can have your little Jesus over here as long as he's not the king. As long as he's not made to be someone who has the rule over all of us, you can have your little private religion. We see that all the time. We see it in our culture, don't we? When we stand up in a public way for the claims of Jesus Christ about how we are to live, we find a great deal of opposition. And true Christians are going to have to decide whether they really believe in His kingship and whether they're willing to trust Him to deliver them. And we see that many people, even other religions, don't mind seeing Jesus as another little prophet, a good person, a miracle worker, somebody who's a great teacher. I mean, other religions will recognize that. Judaism says that. Unbelieving Judaism still continues. I went a number of years ago to Israel to do some um, touring of the places that are spoken of in the Bible, and I had a Jewish tour guide who said that Jesus of Nazareth was a good prophet who taught many good things that maybe his followers carried a little bit too far. Other religions are content to recognize him as a prophet. That's what Islam does, Hinduism and Buddhism. You've all met somebody who say, who says, well, we believe that just all paths lead to God, right? So you may be a Christian, and this other guy's a Buddhist, and I'm a, an atheist, but, you know, as long as we're living in a, in a good way, then we all will come to God. And, I, and you can look up to Jesus, maybe he was a good man, but when you begin to say that Jesus is God's long-awaited Messiah, that He is the one and only King, that He is the only way to God, that's when people begin to be stirred up. And that's what the claims of Christ bring. Christ is no mere religious crutch. Your Savior, King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth must bow. Nothing short of that does justice to who He is. Jesus came to rule as the King. He came not to let you continue to live your life as you will. He came to deliver you from your self-made subjugation to the enemy. He came so that you might yield to Him and bow to Him and rejoice in Him. He came to take dominion over your sin, to crush its head, and to possess the gate of His enemy in you. And you'll either yield to Him and bow to Him and rejoice in His kingship, or you will perish outside that kingdom of everlasting peace. And so the message this morning is, on the one hand, a message of challenge for every one of us. Will you submit to the King? Will you submit your own desires, your own ideas, your own opinions, your own thoughts, 
your own plans? Will you submit your life to underneath the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ? And let me ask you for, for those of you who, who give allegiance to the king, are there still areas of your life that yet need to be given over in greater submission to the king? You think about those for a moment. You think about those areas of your life where though you name Christ as king and though he truly by mercy and grace is the king of your life, yet you tend to want to take that throne back. What are those areas of your heart? Where are those times in your life? And what the Lord is doing today is giving you an opportunity and a call to lay that down before Him and to yield it. To allow Him to rule and reign over every aspect of your life. But I think while this is a message of, of, that is a challenge to us, it's also a message of hope. Because our King is mighty to save. Amen? He is able. He is able to conquer every enemy, every ill that harms you, and every sin in you. He is able to conquer. I'm asking you if you believe that. He is the great king who accomplishes what every king before him, going back to Adam, has failed to accomplish, to crush the head of the serpent, to do away with the power and the sting of sin. And not only is he mighty and able, but I tell you that your king is gracious and patient. He did not shrink back from calling us his brethren, from becoming one of us. And he is a patient and faithful high priest. And wherever you are today and whatever strongholds that sin still has in your heart, if you will go to your king and lay that out before him, rather than crushing you under his wrath, he would be patient and merciful with you. And you have experienced his mercies and his patience. Let that move you to lay everything down before him. And he is not only mighty and not only merciful and gracious, but he is wise. He is wise enough to bring about all his good will, even your sanctification. This king rules and he reigns. His kingdom is full of might and grace and wisdom, and he must reign until he has put all of his enemies and our enemies underneath his feet. For God has put all things in subjection to him. God has said to his son, sit on my throne and rule over your kingdom until all of your enemies become subject to you. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. So that we may say, oh death, oh death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? 
That's the king we have. And for you, who are citizens of the kingdom, I leave you with this good news. Your God reigns. He reigns. Our Heavenly Father, we bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for all of your goodness to us in Him. And we are well aware that in Christ, in our great King, is all of our hope. Hosanna, Lord, save us through the person of Jesus Christ and by His grace and His sacrifice and His power. We pray that You would hear us and deliver us from the sin within us and the evil without. And Lord, even now we ask that You would deal with us in this next couple of moments about any aspects of our lives that are yet not yielded to You. Lord, search every corner of our hearts. Lord Jesus, be King and rule over us. Every thought, let it be brought into captivity and to the obedience of Christ. Every action, every attitude, every word that we have said, spoken, we pray, Lord Jesus, that You would, you would lay hold of us by Your Spirit and rule and reign over us. Amen.